And so we're believing God for a real touch this weekend. You know, our church, uh, the Saturday night, we had a record attendance last Saturday night. God is, it's growing. But there is so much more room for people now that we have three. And God cares about every one of them. He left 99 alone to go find the one. So I want you to get the heart of Jesus. And I want you to reach out to somebody you know. Maybe you know somebody who hadn't been in church in years. They used to, but something happened. Reach out to them. Be Jesus to them and invite them. Amen? All right. You ready to go through Galatians tonight? Well, that didn't convince me any, I believe. Are you ready to go through Galatians tonight? All right. Let's, let's pray together. Father, speak to us out of your word. Your word is precious. It's powerful. And Lord, we need to know the Bible. Our sword, our shield, our truth, our weapon against the devil. And Lord, we pray that tonight you will just sharpen that sword in our hand. And help us, Lord, to be better equipped when we leave to walk in victory, to understand your will, and to defeat the enemy of our soul. And we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and you can be seated. Let's begin this. We're going to go all the way through chapter 2 tonight. We're going to finish a whole chapter. I didn't know we were going to do that until I started kind of typing it out. And I thought, well, we're going to be able to do that. So let's look at it. And uh, Stand Fast in the Liberty is the name of the series. And, you know, I'm going to show you that Paul was intimidated by no man. And I don't want you to be intimidated by a man or a woman. Don't fear anybody. The fear of man brings a snare. Now, we saw last time that Paul was forced to vigorously defend his apostleship due to the undermining he experienced at the hands of false teachers who were the Judaizers. And I'm going to tell you what the Judaizers were again in just a moment. But now, he did so. He defended himself by giving a, a, an autobiographical sketch of himself in Galatians 1, 11 through 24, which we finished last time. Now, just in summary, uh, for three years after he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he was in seclusion. He sh- shut away himself with God. Shut himself in with God, which I've done the last four weeks. I've just shut myself in with God and with the Word. I haven't listened to any news. I haven't read any news. I have watched very little television. I've just shut myself in with God for hours. Now, am I trying to sound spiritual? No. I did it because I needed to do it. And I've been listening to the Lord and letting His Word speak to me. And so this is what Paul did. He said, I don't want to hear from a man. I want to hear from the Lord. So he shut himself in with God. And I would highly recommend that. that There are times when you don't need to hear from a person. You need to hear from God. Now, he emerged from that three years of seclusion by finding Simon Peter and spending 15 days with him in Jerusalem. We talked about that last time. Now, in chapter 2, he continues with autobiographical details about his ongoing struggle with the Judaizers, who were the false teachers of his day. Now, there's two focal centers of interest in chapter 2, and they are Jerusalem and Antioch. Jerusalem was pretty much the 
the, the, Christ, the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem. And in Antioch, it was the Gentile Christian community. You and I had been there back then. We'd have been in Antioch. Amen? Any full-blown Jews in here? Any born Jews? Really? Full? Okay. One. Like I said, we'd be in Antioch. Now, in, in both of those places, Paul had confronted the Judaizers head on. His keen mind, and it was keen, had seen right from the start the spiritual peril to the church of the Judaizers were allowed to win. They couldn't win. Remember, the Judaizers sought, here's, here's what they were, they sought to regulate the admission of Gentiles into the covenant people of God through circumcision and the keeping of the ceremonial law. They said, you're going to have to mix some Old Testament Jewish law with New Testament Christianity in order to be saved. Put another way, you can't be saved by grace alone. You're going to have to mix some works with it. I told you a couple of times ago that any cult always has something you've got to do to get saved. And you can name the cult. I don't care who they are. If it's a cult, if it's an offshoot of Christianity, if it's a, if, if it's an, a, a something, a, an aberration, then believe me, there's something you've got to do. There's works involved. Because to our minds, it doesn't make sense that we don't have to do anything. We're saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. Lest any man should boast. See, the reason that God did that is so that you and I could never say, well, I did this work or that work really well, and that's what got me saved. God wouldn't get the glory for that. The Bible says God doesn't share His glory with anybody. So, we were saved by grace so that nobody can get the glory but God. You and I are saved tonight by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God. We looked up. And by faith said, I trust you. And we were totally 100% saved by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Nothing we did or ever could do could save us. Not anything. And there is not another world religion like that. They all say you've got to do something. So it was the same with the Judaizers. You need to keep the ceremonial law, circumcision, and all this, or you couldn't be saved. Now... It says in Acts 15:1, for example, they insisted that, quote, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Well, this, this drove Paul crazy. If you want to see an angry Paul, this is what did it. He got mad, righteously mad. You didn't want to go up to the Apostle Paul and say, hey, I think we need to mix works with grace. Oh, no, no, no. You would have a terrible experience at the hands of the mighty Apostle Paul. Because for him, this was his swan song. This was the song he played every day to every crowd he preached to. It's by grace alone. If the Judaizers had won the battle, they would have made the Jerusalem church, the mother church, Peter a pope, Christianity just another Jewish sect, and Gentile Christians second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. You and I would have been considered second class, second tier, underneath the saved Jew. But we're not. Amen? Because at the foot of the cross, there's no black, white, yellow, red, rich, poor. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. All of us. <clears throat> now, Paul was prepared to fight to the death 
to prevent such a tragedy from happening. He begins chapter 2 by describing his confrontation with the Jerusalem church. And he spells out for his Galatian converts who had become the living proof of his fears. What do I mean by that? The Judaizers had weaved and wormed their way in among them. And they had been taken by these Judaizers. They believed the Judaizers. And we're going to look next week at the famous quote from Paul when he said, Who has bewitched you? How have you so quickly changed from grace to works? So they were an example of what he was afraid of. If these Judaizers have their way, then the whole movement of the Holy Spirit based on grace is going to be wiped out. And it's going to go back to works. And he was afraid of it. So he forced a test on the Jerusalem church. It says in verses 1 through 2, let's begin chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And I also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation. Now he's saying there, he went to the who's who's, Peter, James, and John, those who were of reputation. Lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. He's saying, I had to be sure that everything I've worked for, all the preaching I've done, all the churches I've built, all the souls I've won to Christ, based on grace alone through faith, has not been in vain. I do not want the Jerusalem church, which was a Jewish Christian church, to change or skew or warp the pure message of grace only. Can everybody say grace only? I think the most famous Christian song in all the world through all the centuries is what? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amazing Grace. Crazy Grace. Stupendous Grace. Awesome Grace. That's what saved us. And we're debtors to God. Amen? Completely and totally. Now, the first time he went to Jerusalem, it was in connection with famine relief. The second visit that Paul made to Jerusalem was in connection with the Jerusalem Conference, which was convened to consider the whole question of imposing Judaism on Gentile Christians. And you can read about that in Acts 15. Now, Paul had asked, as I mentioned a moment ago, to meet with the leadership, the top dogs, the the big boys, Peter, James, John. He wanted to meet with them privately, that he might tell them exactly what he was preaching. Because remember, when he got saved, he didn't go see them. He went off and got alone with God. And he said, the gospel that I preached, Jesus gave me in revelation as I was alone with him. So he did not need the endorsement of the elders to validate his gospel. But here's what he did need. He needed them to do something about their homegrown Judaizers who were hounding him everywhere he went, subverting his converts to Judaism. Where were these Judaizers coming from? They were coming from the Jerusalem church. And who was the the pastor of the Jerusalem church? Jesus' half-brother James. James was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And James was ultra-Jewish. We would say uber-Jewish. 
James was, a, was Jewish in his thinking. And he was presiding over this Jewish Christian, this gigantic, multi-thousand. Listen, it was a mega church in the first century. The Jerusalem church was huge. And James was the pastor. And so he's saying to James, hey, you need to get a hold of some of your people here. They're out there subverting me everywhere I go. You're, the Judaizers that are harassing me, undermining the grace message, are coming from your church. It's like if somebody came to me and said, hey, Jeff, don't know if you're aware of it or not, but some of your people are going around to different churches teaching false doctrine. And you need to find out who they are and get a hold of it. Well, I wouldn't want to hear that ever. But if I did hear it, we would try to figure out who was doing it and, and try to fix it. And this is what was happening with James. Paul was going to him and saying, hey, you need to get your, you need to get your, your folks, reel them in. Because the people following me from town to town, I'm tracking a lot of them back to this church. The council met and the book of Acts gives us their conclusion. And I love this. It says, quote, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now I want to stop right there. You want to know what a good decision is? You want to know what a really good decision is? When you make a decision that first is good to the Holy Spirit. That's a good decision. When you make a decision in harmony with and according to the peace that the Holy Spirit gives. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Notice they were not independent. They were not out just forming this doctrine or this teaching on their own. They weren't doing their own thing, trying to create a world religion. Do you see the, the key place the Holy Spirit played in their life? And folks, I want to tell you something. Listen carefully to me because I really mean this when I say it. We've got to get to the place we realize with small decisions and large and anything in between, the Holy Spirit cares about that decision. He cares. The Holy Spirit wants to be involved in our decision-making process. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, this was about a big deal. This was about doctrine in the early church. Yeah, but you read the book of Acts, and you will find constantly, really, the book of Acts is really the acts of the Holy Spirit in the first century. The acts of the Holy Spirit. These people that have been saved were Holy Ghost people, Holy Spirit people, Spirit-led people, Spirit-influenced people, Spirit-empowered people, Spirit-anointed people. The book of Acts is all about the powerful move of the Holy Ghost in the first century. And I think a lot of believers, some of you sitting here today, don't stop and think sometimes, and I've been there, I've done that. We think, well, I just need to make a decision. I'm, I'm going to make this decision. And, and we just kind of have in our heads, whatever I do, I'm going to ask God to bless it. But sometimes God doesn't work that way. God wants us to be preemptive and ask Him before we do it. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You take this building. Do you think that we just decided to pick a building? Gee, where's a building? Any, any, my, mo. Give me a building. No. We said, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? The Holy Spirit has a plan. The Holy Spirit is not an it or a thing or a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. A person. The Holy Spirit is called He in the Bible. And that person is operating in your life. That person wants to fill you every day, all day. 
Every morning, you and I need to be getting with God and filling our gas tank, filling our spirit tank, filling, getting filled with the Holy Ghost before we go out the door. Because He wants to talk to us all through the day. Don't go here, don't go there, go over here, go over there. Talk to this person, don't follow around with that person, and, and don't involve yourself with this, but do involve yourself with that. He wants to be the counselor. Thou shalt call His name Wonderful. And then what's the second one? Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government, there shall be no end. So who is Jesus? One of the five designations given Him is Counselor. And how does He counsel? His Word and His Spirit. He, when the Spirit of Truth comes, He will lead you and guide you into all truth, child of God. This is what makes Christianity different from any other religion in the world. Number one, it's not a religion. But let's just say that it is. Any other religion in the world has no powerful, supernatural power that comes upon the believers, unless it's demonic, that fills their hearts with love, that guides them, that counsels them, that instructs them, that protects them. I don't ever stand up here and speak until I have gotten somewhere with God and I saturate myself in the Holy Spirit. I won't eat before I preach because I don't, I don't want anything messing with me being energized by anything but God. I'm not trying to sound... I've, listen, I've done this for a long time. And there have been times I stood up and it just my words went right there. It was because I hadn't prayed. I hadn't gotten saturated in the Holy Ghost. Now I know where my power is, where my strength is, who my counselor and guide is. Listen, it's the Holy Spirit. Folks, we need to be Holy Spirit people. You are a Holy Spirit person. So you mean Pentecostal? As Pentecostal as is the Bible. I don't mean the denomination. I'm talking about filled. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Be being filled all day, every day. I didn't mean to go off on that tangent. I just read a little verse here, but I wanted you to know. It seemed good. Let's read that together. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us as if they were secondary, because they were. To lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And what were they? That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. They said, that's all we're going to lay on you right there. That's it. None of the Old Testament Judaism. Just these things, because these things are New Testament. Abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And that's what they said. And that was the end of their meeting. So Paul had not, as he put it, run in vain. Because now the Jerusalem church is with him in this. Now this great victory prevented the disaster of the Jewish and Gentile churches splitting apart. Thus destroying the testimony of the unity of the body of Christ. Which is so crucial. It is in unity where God commands the blessing. In a church, in a home, in a marriage, in a friendship. It's unity where God commands the blessing. Now, verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He's, he took Titus with him, the, the big three, Peter, James, and John, saw Titus, and 
Paul's letting the Galatian believers know here that he had won over the Jerusalem leadership so completely that not even Titus, being a Gentile, was compelled by them to be circumcised. The leaders of the Jerusalem church accepted Titus at face value as a Christian. They saw him as an equal. Now he next tells us that the question of Titus being circumcised would never have arisen if not for certain Judaizers who snuck in stealth-like. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. When he went to meet with the Jerusalem leadership, and this occurred because of the controversy over Titus, occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So when he goes to meet with the leadership, on this whole issue of circumcision and Old Testament law, these guys, these false brethren, snuck in and tried to influence the outcome of the meeting. I like what Paul says here. To whom we did not yield submission even for one hour. You know, Paul was tough. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. I want you to say with me, not one hour. There's some things you don't need to give one hour of your time. There's certain things you don't need to give one hour. Your, your life is too valuable. I'm going to tell you, the older you get, the more you realize it goes just like this. Bang! It's over. I mean, here I am, 30. It seems like last week I was 20. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just making sure you're there. But it does go fast. Matter of fact, the older you get, the more you realize that life kind of slips by in decades. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And you, and you start getting protective of your time. You, you start getting covetous over your time and, and what you give your time to. Paul said, false teachers, they ain't getting an hour of my time. The word for false brethren is pseudodelphos. Pseudodelphos. And one translator renders the word pseudo-Christians. Paul contends that these people were not Christians at all. You know, tell the truth. We're in much more tolerant today of false teachers than Paul was. Not just Paul, but Peter and Jude. Read what they wrote. They weren't tolerant of false teachers at all. But we feel like we've got to love everybody and be gentle and not offend anybody. Paul wasn't uh, concerned at all about offending people. Some people need to be offended. Some people ought to be offended. No doubt, many in Jerusalem considered these men to be genuine Christians, but not Paul. These Judaizers, these false teachers, trying to mix Old Testament with New, taking away pure grace. To him, they were counterfeits, and the word he used to describe them rips off their mask. I told you a couple of weeks ago, not everything that calls itself Christian, dear church, is Christian. There's, a, there's, there's programs on Christian TV that are not Christian. There's some preachers and teachers that say they're Christian preachers and teachers, and they're really not. They don't preach the Word. Some of them hardly ever mention the Word. Some of them call themselves pastors, but they never even mention the Bible. They won't say the word sin. But just because somebody is charismatic or seemingly successful, or likable, 
We tend to just receive anything they say, but we've got to get discerning. If you were to ask me, Pastor, what is the major problem in the church of Jesus Christ today? I would say discernment and lack thereof. There is a, there is a blindness that has come on the Christian church that, that just makes me marvel. I, I marvel at it. I can't believe the church has gotten as blind as it has in some areas. We don't discern anymore. And, and we're afraid to call, call a, a, something wrong, wrong. We're afraid to call something that is false, false. We're afraid to offend or look like we're judging. Paul and Peter and James and John judged all the time. Hello, church. Well, but that's not love. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. If, if your little baby, if your child, when they were eight, nine years old, came in from, let me put it this way. One time... Our little boy, Jeremy, when he was little, about eight or nine years old, had a friend over. We were living in East Texas, and they went outside to play. And then they came in at one point, and they asked for a can. They said they were crawdad hunting. Oh, that's what I used to do, so go get them, son. Here's a can. And a few minutes later, they came back in and gave me the can. I looked inside. It wasn't crawdads. It was scorpions. And they thought it was crawdads. Well, I about had a heart murmur on the spot. I said, have you been stung or anything? No, why? Because these are, these are scorpions. Now what? Now stop and think a minute. What if I had said, gee, I can't hurt his feelings? He might feel dumb that I tell him these aren't crawdads, these are scorpions. He might take it personally. I don't want to offend him. So go ahead, son, play with your crawdads. We tell people in the church, oh, I better not say anything. The, the, the whole same-sex marriage thing, the whole, all the false doctrines hammering the church, scorpions. But nobody will say it. Oh, go ahead. That's okay. I don't want to offend you. And they get stung and die. Love will tell the truth. And I told the truth that day. I said, give it to me quick. Son, that's a scorpion. And I taught him the difference. He never picked up another one. Do you see what I'm saying? What is this, what is this lockjaw that has gotten on the church? We've got to tell the truth. Jesus told us to tell the truth. Jesus told the truth. You brood of vipers, you snakes, you whitewashed walls, you whited sepulchers, you gravestones, you hypocrites. That was Jesus. Jesus wouldn't make it in many churches today. They'd kick him out. I'm telling you the truth. They would kick him out. You're not loving. He was love. Paul ripped off their mask. He said, these are false teachers. I don't even think they're saved. He said, we didn't submit to them for even an hour. And so should we be also toward those who teach things that do not line up with Scripture. No matter who they are, how successful they may seem, or who sings their praises. If their message is not biblical, don't submit to them. How long? Say it with me. For even an hour. Now, next, Paul mentions the big names. Verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it didn't make any difference to me. He goes on to say, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Peter, James, and John, Paul says, ah, they seem to be something. They didn't add anything to me. 
Paul's mention of the who's who's in Jerusalem suggests that the Judaizers had been busy trumpeting the praises of the Jerusalem church and its leaders in an attempt to undermine Paul. We can imagine them saying something like this to the Galatians. Man, you Galatians are making so much of this Paul guy. You should see and hear the real apostles. This Paul of yours wouldn't look so great once you heard a fiery message from Peter. Why, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 were saved in one message. What's this Paul guy? And they were holding up the Jerusalem church to undermine Paul. Paul's attitude was to give due respect to the Lord's original apostles, but he wasn't greatly impressed. God doesn't show favoritism. He says in verse 7 through 10, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter. Now, parenthetically, look what it says. He who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised or the Jew also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Simon Peter had it going on with the Jews. Paul said, I've got it going on with the Gentiles. The same grace that's on Peter is on me. Now, I want you to look at what he goes on and says. And when James, Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, what did they do? Read it with me. Perceive the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, I want to focus on that phrase. Let me go back and look at it. When they perceived the grace that had been given to me. Folks, I can't tell you how important it is to judge people according to the grace that's on them and not by worldly standards. See, something happened here. They desired only, he says in verse 10, that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now, it's one thing to hear about a man, to hear rumors, or to hear good or bad about a person. But it's another thing to meet him. When you meet him in person. We've all had this experience. You heard a lot about somebody. Then you finally met them. And, and what you met may not have been what you heard. Okay? The grace of God that was resting on Paul to reach the Gentiles was totally, clearly evident. Grace. Now remember, Paul had been under attack in the Galatian church. Judaizers from this church that James was overseeing were undermining him. So I'm going to speculate that James had heard some things, good or bad, about Paul. And yet, when he met him, he said, wow, this may not be everything that I heard because there's a grace on this man. There's an anointing on this man. Now, I want to go to a verse in Corinthians where Paul talks about this very thing. Paul wrote about the need to judge a person through spiritual discernment rather than the natural eye. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.16. Quote, Consequently, from now on, we estimate or judge and regard no one from a purely human point of view in terms of natural standards of value. Catch that, church. Very, very important. 
Because a lot of people don't go to church anymore because they were judged wrong. They were looked down on. They were criticized. They were rejected. They were treated uh, less than. They were looked at and judged by worldly standards. And some people come in now, pink hair, purple hair, blue hair, tatted all up and down, looking weird, earrings, hanging out of every ears, nose, lips. Some people walk in, oh, hey. Very different from you and me. But then I think, I used to look that way to people in my day. I had hair down here, skinny as a rail, bell-bottom blue jeans, wire rim glass, a hippie. And people used to look at me the same way. I remember walking into a church after I was saved, an official denominational church, and I never went back because I didn't have a suit. I didn't have a haircut. Everybody turned around and looked at me. No one said hello. And I got the distinct feeling that I was not one of them. But guess what? I was his. And I was born of God. But they, they did this. They treated me by judging me through the natural eye. They didn't perceive the grace that was on me. Here's the worldly standards. The world judges people by how they dress, how much money they make, their pedigree, what family they were born into, Rockefeller, what their education is. Do they say he ain't got no or he doesn't have any? What they look like? What kind of car they drive? All these things. We look at people and we judge them. And we size them up based on these things. Now, what Paul is saying is that's not the way you judge people. That's not the way you look at somebody. That's not the way that you get an opinion about them. Because they may have a wonderful heart. They may know the Lord and love the Lord with all their heart. They may love Him more than you do. So... No matter what they look like, when they come walking into the church, they need to be received as Jesus has received us. I mean, if they look poor, if they look rich, if they look weird, if they look like us. And to them, we look weird. Have you ever thought about that? To them, we look weird. The disciples judge differently. I want you to notice this. This really jumped at me today. Paul says... When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived, discerned the grace that had been given to me. Literally, here's the way it reads. When they knew, discerned the gift, the favor of God on my life to reach the Gentiles. They didn't meet just Paul, okay? It wasn't just Paul. They, they weren't looking at Paul based on his past as a persecutor, because man, did he have one. They weren't judging him according to his vast educational credentials because his credentials were far beyond theirs. They weren't judging him by any of these worldly standards. They were judging him based on what they discerned in the Spirit of God. I used to work for a man at a radio station. He was a funny little guy. He was about this, this high, and he was rich, and he owned this station. But he really loved the Lord. He'd been through some hard knocks, and he'd learned some hard lessons. And I was in a, one of the offices in the, in the radio station, and I heard somebody come in, or several people. I heard several voices. And I heard him say, Brother, it's so good to see you. My, 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 my. He always did that. My, 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 my. He said, get a chair. He, and he ordered somebody to bring them chairs. And I'm sitting there thinking, has the mayor walked in? 
Who is this? Because he's acting like literally Jesus just walked in. So I sat and I, you know, the walls were thin and I could kind of hear him and, well, how's it been going? And how are you doing? And what can we do for you? And his whole demeanor was, wow, he really thinks something of these people. Finally, I got up and I walked down the hall and I looked in. It was three missionaries, poor, disheveled, clearly no money, nobody to write home about, in dirty clothes. And when I saw who they were, I was stunned. That's who he has been talking to? And I learned this from him. Discern the grace that's on people. Discern the grace that's on them. Judge them by the Spirit and not after the flesh. If you do that, you'll love them. You'll receive them. Do you know what a difference this will make in the church if we treated people this way? Discern their heart. Discern who they are in God. They discerned the grace that was on Paul, and they said, whatever we've heard or haven't heard, what we see is spiritual. This man has a great grace on his life. So they sent him out to the Gentiles with their 110% blessing because of spiritual discernment. Folks, I'm telling you, this is one of the great problems in the church. There are going to be so many people not in church this weekend all over the country because they have been judged by those worldly standards and not been received in the grace of God. When I met Billy Graham, and I did, I told you this story, but when I met him, he didn't treat me. I had long hair, blue jeans, bell bottoms, t-shirt, clearly fresh out of the hippie movement. He treated me like I was a president. I'll never forget it. They were discerning the gift, the calling, the grace of God on his life. They were judging who he was in Jesus Christ. Now, notice the effect that this had. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They said, we get it. We discern you. You go, guy. You go win the Gentiles. The grace is on you. And because they judged him spiritually, they were able to bless the genuine call on his life. And Paul went out and shook the world and gave us two-thirds of the New Testament. Thank God. How often would it help us in receiving someone were we to see their value in Jesus? How advantageous it would be for all involved were we to look past all the worldly standards of judging and discern the grace, the gift, the calling on their life. What a powerful way to circumvent prejudice, fleshly judgmentalism, and rejection. Amen? Y'all are quiet tonight. Amen? Next, we find Paul in a very tense confrontation. Now, this really gets me. Paul is really growing fast because he's about to stand right toe-to-toe with Peter and rebuke him. Look at what happens. Verse 11, chapter 2. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him. This is Paul talking. I withstood him to his face because he was what? To be blamed. For before certain men came from James, He would eat with the Gentiles. Now, let me tell you what this is saying. Peter had gone to Antioch where the Gentile churches were. Paul's children 
in the faith. Peter went to visit at Paul's invitation. And so he says, before certain men came from James and from the Jerusalem church, before they got some visitors, he would eat with the Gentiles. Peter was at the table eating hot dogs and hamburgers with the Gentiles, enjoying the fish fries, enjoying being treated like a king. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Now, here's what had been going on. Peter had been playing a two-faced game at Antioch. Aren't you glad the Bible tells the truth about the people in it? Aren't you glad? Because if I'm trying to create a myth, I'm not going to talk this way about the heroes. But here's the truth. Peter had been playing a two-faced game in Antioch and drew down on his head the righteous indignation of the Apostle Paul, who was no respecter of persons. It turns out that Peter had visited the church in Antioch at Paul's invitation. This was the the church of Paul's Gentile converts. And while in Antioch, Peter was lionized by the Gentile believers. Like if Billy Graham walked in here right now, we would all go, the service would be over. They hung on his every word. They were thrilled to have the great apostle Peter in their midst. They put him on a pedestal. They were thrilled at the wholehearted endorsement of their churches, the warm-hearted good fellowship in their homes with the great Simon Peter himself. Then some newcomers had arrived in town from Jerusalem. He says, from James, the half-bro of Jesus. Immediately, Peter changed his tune when he saw the Jewish brethren. And he became intimidated. It's hard to escape the conclusion that when news reached Jerusalem of Peter's hearty fraternization with Gentile Christians, the ultra-Jewish James sent some representatives to Antioch to tell him, Hey, Peter, cool it. Chill. What are you doing? These people have not embraced any level of Judaism. These are Gentiles. We're above them. God would have to deal with James later. Peter caved in. Peter caved in. He began to turn down invitations. He retreated into his shell, restricting his contacts thereafter to only the fellowship of Jewish Christians. Now, here's Paul. He's watching his children in the faith be dissed by a hero of the faith. And it went all up and down him. Paul bluntly says that he did it fearing them of the circumcision. Peter's example had also spread because he was a leader. It says in verse 13, the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas, who was Paul's traveling companion, even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And he began to diss the Gentile believers. Now remember, Barnabas had been Paul's companion. Even he was carried away. If Paul was disappointed by Peter, he was devastated by Barnabas, who he knew really well. And also, remember, these Gentile believers were Paul's children in the faith, his pride and joy, his constant labor and focus, who he was always writing to and saying, my beloved children, my dearly beloved, I love you in the Christ. I gladly give my life for you. To have Peter treat them this way was like somebody walking up to one of your kids in front of you and just slap them. 
the she-bear got mad. We can imagine the hurt and confusion in the Gentile camp. <laughs> They'd virtually idolized Peter, and now their idol proved to have feet of clay. Wow! We thought he loved us, and now some of these Jewish brethren come down, and he doesn't know our name. If Paul had not strongly rebuked Peter, a great gulf between the Jewish and Gentile believers would have developed. Paul says of Peter, he was to be blamed. Then Paul launches on a theological message to Peter. Can you imagine being dressed down by Paul theologically? Hello, everybody. Can you imagine being dressed down by Paul, period? Peter, I can imagine going on vacation with. I can't imagine going on vacation with Paul. Hey, let's go parachuting. Can you imagine saying that? Parasailing? Hey, Paul, let's go parasailing. No, I'd rather pray. Peter, he'd be up there parasailing immediately. Now, let's read. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read as we close out this chapter what Paul said to Peter. There's some good nuggets in here. He says, when I saw they were not honest about the truth of the good news. What is the truth of the good news, church? Everybody is equal. Everybody is equal. That's the truth of the good news. Everybody's equal. And when I saw that they were not honest about that, Peter and the Jewish brethren, I spoke to Peter right in front of all of them. I said to him, if you're a Jew, but live like the people who are not Jews. In other words, you've been willing to get down and fellowship with the Gentiles and not be Jewish. Then why would you make the people who are not Jews live like the Jews? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. You and I, he says to Peter, were born Jews. We were not sinners from among the people who are not Jews. In other words, we didn't come from the Gentile pagan world. Even so, we know we cannot become right with God by obeying the law. We know that. A man is made right with God by putting his trust in Jesus Christ. For that reason, he says, we have put our trust in Jesus Christ also. We have been made right with God because of our faith in Christ and not by obeying the law or works. Here's Paul with his grace-only message. No man can be made right with God by obeying the law. Nobody as we try to become right with God by what Christ has done for us, he goes on to say in verse 17, what if we find we're sinners also? Does that mean Christ makes us sinners? No, never. But if I work toward being made right with God by keeping the law, then I'm going to find that I'm making myself a sinner because I can't keep the law. And neither can you. Have you ever tried it? Just take the Ten Commandments. Try one day, not breaking one of them. You'll snap. You'll snap. Why was Jesus so precious? Because in his whole life, he never broke one and died a righteous man. Now, he says, the law has no power over me now, says, says Paul to Peter. I'm dead to the law. Now I can live for God. Now I want us to read verse 20 together. Are you ready? Read it with me and preach it to me. I have been put up on the cross. To die with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by putting my trust in the Son of God. He was the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Give God praise for that. That's a great passage. 
The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Then in closing, in verse 21, he says, I say that we are not to put aside the loving favor of God. If we could be made right with God by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, Peter, get off of it. Would you, would you quit getting, uh, hooking up with these Judaizer types with the attitude that we've got to mix law with grace? Peter, hello, get off it. It's grace only, son. By the time Paul was finished with him, weeping, pleading, arguing, and praying, I guarantee you, Peter would be far more afraid of Paul than he ever was of James. <laughs> okay, he went to. Now, it is to Peter's credit that he honestly repented following the chastisement, and he never held it against Paul. You say, how do you know that? I want to read to you a verse in closing that is so important. Because it's going to show you that Simon Peter believed that Paul's writings were Scripture. Okay? Watch. 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. Peter says, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our what, brother? This is the guy that rebuked him this way. So can you see that he forgave him? He says, As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Now people say, well... The New Testament is not the Word of God like the Old Testament was. No. Peter right here says Paul's writings are Scripture. They are the inerrant, God-breathed, inspired Word of God. So he forgave him. They made up. The Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians got along. They never separated, never divided, primarily thanks to the great Apostle Paul. So can we stand together tonight? Next time, look what I'm going to be speaking on on Wednesday night. Say it with me. Who has bewitched you? That word is so strong, we're going to dive again into salty Paul and his strength in God and his fearlessness towards men. Lord, we just thank you right now that the Word of God is true. We thank you, Lord Jesus. For what we have learned out of Galatians chapter 2. Thank you, Lord, that you kept in unity the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Thank you for this man, Paul, who stepped into the gap and took a stand for grace only. Thank you, Lord, that we stand in a faith that is grace only and not of works, but grace only. Thank you, Lord, that we were saved by grace, we're kept by grace, carried by grace, and we will be taken to glory by grace. Thank you that it's not up to our performance, Lord, but it's your performance that you already did when you died on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Lord. Hey, is our God.